Uh, we have a new question in our Dear God series, and if you followed along the street, I have to tell you again, it's not, Dear God, would you please help me fit into these pants? You know, that's just sort of to make you chuckle a little bit. Um, I've never actually asked, that, asked God that question, so, so I'm one of the lucky ones, right? <laughs> um, dear God, uh, today's question is, Dear God, why does life have to be so hard? So if you have your bulletins with you or your programs, you can take it out because there's a fill in the blank there. The question that we're going to start today with is, if you were asked to write down one or two words to fill in this sentence, what would you write? And, and the, the sentence basically is, life is a blank. Life is a blank. You know, I actually had a person in our church and I was so shocked that she would come up with this word. She, she actually, uh, her first thought was life is a word that starts with letter B. And I can uh, just let you finish that. So I said, no, I'm not going to write that up there. That isn't very, Christ that isn't very Christian. Yeah. So, uh, but it may be what a lot of people do feel uh, that life is. Um, complete this life sentence. You know, there's a lot of different options. Um, some people uh, would like to say life is a party. If a person says life is a party, I would say, you know, a big priority in your life would be having fun, right? So, you know, it's all about having fun. Life is a party. You may say life is a race. And if you say life is a race, you're probably into speed, into efficiency, into get her done kind of a, a mentality. You might say life is a marathon. And if that was your word that you'd fill in the blank, I'd say that you were into endurance, into persevering and overcoming over time. You might say life is a battle. Life is a battle. I think um, there's a Pat Benatar song, Life is a Battlefield. Uh, she's got one like that. Maybe she reminded me from my high school days. Thank you, Pat, for that one. Um, life is a battle. That might remind you or, or say that it's all about winning. Life is like a struggle and you have to overcome. You have to beat the opposition. So you might prioritize winning. Uh, you might say life is an examination. Life is an examination, and this is an actual quote from somebody. He says, life is an examination, and most people fail because they try to copy others, right? <laughs> so life is an examination, but you're not meant to look over on your neighbor's sheet and copy what they're doing. God made you unique, and he wants to live the life he's called you to live, not copy somebody else's life, right? So you might say, uh, back to, uh, you know, Forrest Gump, if you're into that movie, you know, remember what he always said, life is like a box of chocolates, you know, <laughs> you never know what you're going to get. I, I, it's my best uh, Forrest Gump imitation. Um, if that is your answer, I'd say you're either a, a Tom Hanks fan or maybe you're just a chocoholic. So... <laughs> Uh, and then finally, uh, you might say this, life is a mystery. And if you say life is a mystery, I would tend to think that you still have some things that you are trying to figure out about life. And that's why you're saying life is a mystery. And if that's true, I would say you're, you're humble and you realize you don't have all the answers. And I might even think of you as is on your way to being wise, to say life is a mystery. But you know, there's another uh, side of life that some people look at and sometimes they get tired of life, sometimes they get weary of life, sometimes they get cynical about all the things that have happened to them, negative, in their lifetime. And some, sometimes people will just say, you know what, life is hard 
and then you die. Life is hard and then you die. And I would say, I wouldn't want to spend a whole lot of time with a person like that. I mean, they would, they, they, they're what uh, some pastors call VDP, very draining people, you know, if, that, if that's your constant life attitude. Life is hard, and then you die. Um, you remember the children's book. I just saw it last night. I was looking it up online, and it's talking about Alexander and his terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. And from the moment he wakes up, he said, I was chewing gum last night and I woke up and the gum was in my hair and it was all matted up. And, and that was just step one. And then he tries to get out of bed and he steps on his skateboard and trips and then something else happens. And uh, he, he drops his uh, sweater in the sink and the water was running. So his sweater gets wet. And that's just like, and then the book just goes on from there. It's a, it was a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day for Alexander. You know, honestly, every once in a while, life does seem to get overwhelming. I mean, it could be a health scare. It could be a, a death or a critical health issue of somebody in your family. It could be a divorce. It could be the loss of a job. It could be a child's illness or injury. It could be, glow. I mean, maybe you're even thinking more in the macro level and you're thinking, well, look at the global terrorism that's going on in the world right now. Look at the economic collapse that is probably just around the corner if you're a real pessimist. And you could look up and you could look up to God and you'd say, God, you made this world or you made us and here we are in this world and, and God, why? Why does my life have to be so hard? You know, there's no doubt that there are episodes, there are chapters in our life that can be really hard. I mean, you can play by the rules. You cannot uh, smoke, you can avoid drinking, you can avoid drugs, and still you could get a disease. You could be a model employee, you could be loyal and reliable, and you could still lose your job. You could be a faithful, loving, married spouse, and still your spouse could give you that conversation that you never wanted to hear, I'm leaving you. You can do your best to be healthy and you can still get sick. You can exercise five times a week and you can still have a heart attack or a stroke. It's just the unstable nature of life that we're living. So no matter how unpredictable, no matter how bad our, your life seems today, I would submit to you, your life did not or has not gotten as bad as a man whose story is in the Bible. And this man's name is, uh, it has to do with employment, right? There's your clue. It has to do with being employed. You get, you have a, right? And that's how you spell it. You have a job, but his name is actually pronounced Job, right? Uh, do you know Job's story in the Bible? Are you aware of it? There's a whole book in the Hebrew scriptures that is devoted to the story of this man who had way past a terrible, horrible, no good, very bad day. It's a remarkable, mysterious, kind of a head-scratcher story because it addresses some of the most difficult questions in life, and yet you get to the end of the book, and the, it wraps up, and it's like all's well that ends well, like a Shakespeare uh, comedy, except by the end of the book, not all of life's questions are answered. Let's look just briefly at this book of Job together, right? So here's Job's story in the Bible. There was once a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. That's not the land of Oz, and there was no Emerald City, right? This, this is the land of Uz, and it is uh, somewhere near the southeast of, if you know where Israel and Jerusalem is, it's in the southeast 
east direction of that. It's out in the desert towards Saudi Arabia. So he grew up there. He's a rich man. He was blameless. He was a man of complete integrity. He feared God. He stayed away from evil. He had seven sons and three daughters, right? So you see this man, oh man, Job's got it going on. He's wealthy. He's uh, married. He's got 10 kids. He's, he has complete integrity. Blameless means nobody can come and accuse him of a sin or a crime that he's done. And he's got a big family. He's obviously being blessed by God. And yet this is what happened to Job. Let's go to the next verse. One day, and, I, and look at how I've titled it, disaster number one. One after another, he's going he's gonna to confront four disasters in a very short period of time on the same day. So whenever you think you're having a bad day, just remember, uh, Job, uh, he's got the royal flush as far as bad days go. One day when Job's sons and daughters were feasting at the oldest brother's house, a messenger arrived at Job's home with his news. Your oxen were plowing and the donkeys were feeding beside them. And oh, by the way, I need to tell you that in the ancient world, the way they measured wealth was by the number of livestock that you had, right? So if you had oxen and donkeys and sheep and goats and cattle, and if you had hundreds of those or even thousands of those, that's what made you a wealthy person in the ancient world. So... You're talking about his oxen and his donkeys. And he says, when the Sabaeans came and they raided us and they stole all the animals and killed all the farmhands. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. So this happens to Job. And obviously his wealth has just been diminished. His, uh, some of his livestock have been destroyed and they've been taken away. And the farmhands, people that he probably knew, that he probably worked with during the week, they were killed. So there's disaster number one. Let's go to the next one. Number two, while he was still speaking. So it's not like Job gets time to digest this and deal with it and pray about it or anything. You know, one disaster uh, fell on him and the minute that guy gets is done talking, this other guy comes in. Another messenger arrived with the news, the fire of God has fallen from heaven and burned up your sheep and all the shepherds. Now I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. Disaster number two. So now he loses his sheep and he loses his shepherds. So even if he had sheep, he wouldn't have anybody to take care of him. While he was still speaking, a third messenger arrived with this news. Three bands of Chaldean raiders have stolen your camels and killed your servants. I forgot to mention camels. That was another big uh, uh, feather in your cap as far as wealth goes. And they've killed your servants and stolen your camels. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. That's the third disaster. All those are bad and terrible, but the fourth one is probably the worst one of all. While he was still speaking, another messenger arrived with this news. Your sons and daughters were feasting in their oldest brother's home, and suddenly a powerful wind swept in from the wilderness and hit the house on all sides. The house collapsed, and all your children are dead. And I'm the only one who escaped to tell you. You know, I, I can't even imagine. I don't even really want to imagine how awful a day like that was for even a godly man like Job. Job must have been laid low. He must have been absolutely devastated. And yet, when you see Job's reaction, you will say, that's almost superhuman to be able to have a response like that because Job had an amazing godly response. In verse 20 and 21, it says, at this news, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. 
Now, I don't know why somebody would shave their head when bad news comes, but it was a sign of grief in the ancient world. So he's tearing his robe, something terrible's happened, he's shaving his head in humility and in grief and in mourning. And he fell to the group in worship and he said, naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I will depart. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Can you imagine that for a response? I can't come up with any example in the Bible of someone who's had terrible bad things happen to them more collectively than Job, and yet Job found a way in the midst of his pain and loss, he still found a way to worship God. I mean, that is remarkable. It's no wonder what God said about Job. In the beginning of the book, when God is describing Job, this is what God thought of Job. He says, he says, uh, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one like him. He is blameless and upright. He's a man who fears God and shuns evil. So the Lord knew the kind of character that Job had. The Lord knew what Job could withstand and still keep his relationship with God. Friends, I wouldn't want to wish those disasters on even my worst enemies. I wouldn't want to wish any of those disasters on anyone. But if something bad happens to you or something bad happens to me, I would hope that we would be somewhat like Job. I would never want to stop praising God even when I don't understand why this happened or I don't understand why this life can be so hard. It doesn't come naturally to me just to say, well, God, you're good no matter what happens, and naked I came into this world, and naked I'll leave, and the Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you have that as your natural reaction when something bad happens? I mean, it's not an, it's a, it's not an easy reaction to have. This is a truth that encourages me when something like that does happen. It says this, even in the hardest of times, the goodness of God does not change. Remember, it says in the Bible that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His character doesn't change. He doesn't love you less, and that's why this happened to you. Or he doesn't love you more, and that's why you're being blessed. You can do the worst sin in the world, and Jesus isn't going to love you any less than he did the day before. So that, praise God that God is, is consistent in his character. The goodness of God does not change even in, the hard, even in the hardest of times. God is always good even when this world that we live in is not. God is good even when the world is not. I don't know how many of you guys have read a book. It's a famous book. It's not the Bible. Uh, it's probably up there in the top 10 best Christian selling novels or books of all time. It's called The Purpose Driven Life. Uh, the author is a pastor in Southern California. I met him. He's a wonderful person uh, inside and out. Um, he's the real deal. He'll put a hug on you that will take the breath out of you. Uh, his name is Rick Warren. And Rick Warren wrote this book called The Purpose Driven Life. And in that book, he asked this question. He says, what if we could... Uh, in other words, instead of seeing our life from just our point of view, this is what I can see, what I can sense, this is what's happened to me, this is, how I, this is my only way of interpreting my life. But what if we had divine revelation from God, and what if we could see our life from God's perspective? In other words, what, how does God look down on us? How does He see us and our life, right? And this is what 
uh, this is what the Bible says in kind of a summary of how God sees our life. The first thing is, and these are fill in the blanks for your bulletin, so if you want to fill in those words, there are three things that life is from God's point of view. Number one, life is a test. Life is a test. Number two, life is a trust. And number three, life is a temporary assignment. Life is a test. Life is a trust. Life is a temporary assignment. Now, let's unpack each one of those. First, life is a test. Our life here on earth, God sees it as a test. The writers of the Bible use words that are sort of like a test. The, the, the writers use words like trials, when you go through trials, when you go through troubles. You remember Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble or you will have tribulation, but be of good courage because I have overcome the world. So life is full of, of, of troubles and trials, temptations. The Bible talks about refining our lives. The Bible talks about testings that happen to us in our lives more than 200 times in the Bible. So it's not exactly a, an obscure topic. This is something that happens to everybody, and God talks about it a lot. And so one of the verses that came to mind when we're facing this idea that life is a test is look what it says in the book of James. This is in the New Testament. This is the half-brother of Jesus, son of Mary and Joseph, who became the leader in the Jerusalem church when it began. He says this, dear brothers and sisters, by the way, James was, uh, you know what his nickname was? Camel knees. Camel knees. Not very, I mean, I'm glad that he's not a woman because a woman would say, well, that's really offensive. Uh, but camel knees was good for James because uh, it was a compliment because it reminded how does somebody get calloused, cam how does somebody get calloused and, and camel-like knees? How do they get that? From, from praying, from being on his knees in prayer all the time. And so that was his nickname. So you tell what a kind of spiritual life he has. And this is what his perspective is on our trials and the troubles we go through. James says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. I challenge you to embrace that verse. That is a lot easier said than done. Sometimes they say the Christian life, it's instant oatmeal to talk about, but it's really brain surgery to live out. And this is one of those verses that's a lot easier to talk about than to live out. Consider it joy when you face trials of many kinds, right? For you know, verse 3, that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So one of the things that can develop when we, are, when we face tests in life is we can grow in endurance. I don't know how you and I can grow in endurance if we don't face some kind of test that makes us or obligates us to have to endure. So your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete, needing nothing. What a great promise that our endurance in life, our, our ability to withstand setbacks and problems and disappointments, that God says, I'm allowing you to have this in your life so that you can develop that character of endurance. You know, Adam and Eve faced a test in the garden. They failed, right? Uh, thank you for playing. Have a nice eternity. Uh, it's too bad because they brought trouble on the whole human race when they failed the test that God gave them. And a broken relationship with God and sin and death, it all came into the world. And now we're all part of it. We're living in the fallout. We're living in the fallout after the fall of Adam and Eve. In a way, you and I will always be tested, right? We are tested about every day of our lives. And you say, what do you tested by God every day of our lives. 
Think about how you and I are tested every day of our lives. Every day, we are tested in our response to people in our lives, people that uh, annoy us, that irritate us, that oppose us. We are tested by problems. We're tested by success, that it doesn't go to our head. We're tested by illness. We're tested by disappointment. We're even tested by conflicts. And you will be tested in your life many times. You'll be tested by unexpected changes, unanticipated problems. You'll be tested by unanswered prayers. How many of you guys have been praying about something and you, you don't seem to have an answer for it yet, right? If we're honest, right? So sometimes God doesn't answer every prayer. I think I, I can speak for myself. It seems like earlier in my Christian life when I would pray, I would see almost immediate answers to my prayers. Now, when I'm praying for things, and maybe I'm praying for different things than I was praying for before, but I'm praying and I'm not seeing immediate answers to my prayers. But the idea is don't give up praying. Keep on asking. Keep on seeking. Keep on knocking because that's when the door is going to be open. So we need, I need to develop the, the, the character of enduring in prayer, not giving up just because, hey, God, I prayed about that yesterday and you didn't answer that. So I'm, so I'm just quitting on it. No, God says, don't quit on it. Keep on praying. So your endurance will be fully developed. You'll be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So life is a test. Number two, life is a trust. Life is a trust, meaning this, that the life that you and I have here on this earth, this is a gift from God. Our life is a gift from God. So is our intelligence that he gives us, our abilities, our energies, our resources that we have in this life, everything that we have is a gift from God. Everything that we have is on loan from God. That's why he says life is a trust. We're not the owners of it all. We're the managers of it all. Uh, a, a more uh, traditional translation says we're the stewards. But I, if you have to explain what it is and just use the other word. So managers, like we are managers of what God has entrusted to us. Paul the Apostle says this in 1 Corinthians. Remember that book that we were in together all summer long? Oh, yeah. Yeah, okay. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, Now a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. So God gives us all this life and our energy and our resources, and he says, I want you to use this once-in-a-lifetime life that, that God, one and only life that God has given you, I want you to use it to glorify me. I want you to use this life that you have to advance my kingdom now that you are in my son, Jesus Christ. I want you to be on mission with God and to use it and to take what God has loaned us and use it to glorify him. So the good news is that at the end of our life, if life is a test and life is a trust, the good news is that God says he's going to reward us for being faithful, for being uh, good managers of what God has entrusted to us. So we have that going for us. God is a rewarder of those who earnestly seek him, it says. So life is a trust, but there's a reward in store if we prove trustworthy and reliable. Number three, life is a temporary assignment. Now, this is probably my favorite one of the three, because I don't know about you, but if you think, wow, God, you know, like somebody says, life is hard and then you die. And my question is, and then what? Right? Life is hard and then you die. Is that the end? Is death the end? Is it just the, 
a, a period at the end of somebody's life here on earth? Or is there life beyond this life physically that we have here on the earth? Uh, God says in the Bible that uh, our life here on earth, this is just the beginning of our eternal life that God has for us. We are temporarily here on this earth. We're going to be forever in uh, one of two other places, which I'm not going to talk about at this moment. Biblical words that describe us while we're still here on the earth. So God uses these words to describe our life while temporarily we are here on this earth. He uses words like pilgrims, uh, not just uh, John Wayne, you know, took it, but I don't know if he meant that. Uh, pilgrims as in the uh, peregrino is the word in Spanish. It, it basically means somebody who's on their way somewhere else, right? Just passing through, right? Just passing through. I think if you and I could remember that about our life here on earth, it would be helpful to say when we look up and we say, dear God, why does this life have to be so hard? And God would say, you're just passing through. You know, this isn't the whole deal. This is the beginning of your eternal life. And you're going to learn some things while you're here, and then you're going to get to enjoy eternal life. So as bad as your life gets, just remember it's temporary. We're pilgrims. We're aliens. We're foreigners. We're strangers and travelers. Rick Warren likes to joke and say, you know, all of us who are, who are followers of Christ, while we're still living on this earth, and the Bible says our citizenship with Christ, now that we're in, in, in faith in Christ and we're citizens of the heavenly kingdom, he says that we are now just strangers and pilgrims here on the earth. And Rick Warren says what we ought to have is we ought to just have something in our hand to remind us. And he calls it a spiritual green card. Now, those of you in California, you ever heard the, the, somebody shout, Emigra, right? What that is, is it's, it's, it's the idea is if you have a green card, which was the way it was described, then you have a residency status. You are legal to be here in this land, right? And when we have a spiritual green card, it's to remind us that we are temporary residents here on this planet Earth. And that our real home, our eternal home, where Christ, who is your life, and when he appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, it says in Colossians. So that good thing is coming for us. Look what Paul says in another letter to the Corinthians. He says, the things we see now are here today, add an E on that her, are here today and gone tomorrow. You ever heard that phrase, here today and gone tomorrow? And that's the way life is. But the things that we can't see now will last forever. What we are experiencing now is temporary. And God sees our life as a, as a, as a test. We, we have tests that, we, that he wants us to pass. And he's given us his word, the Bible. He's given us a church community. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And he says, I've equipped you to be able to pass all these tests. But you will be tested in this life. So life is a test. Life is a trust. We're managers. We're not the owners. God has entrusted everything that he's given to us, and he says, use it for my glory. Use it for the advancement of my kingdom. But the things that we can't see now will last forever because when this temporary assignment is over, we're going to be forever with God in heaven. And that's why I say this phrase, life is short and eternity is long. So if you say, what's the, what's the most spiritual answer you could give? Life is uh, blank. I, I would say, you know what? Life is short and eternity is long. That's the way I would like to say it. So 
there's a song that we used to sing in church back in the day when I first became a follower of Christ in the early 80s. The church that I was at sang this song all the time, and it was called All Fly Away. All Fly Away, right? It says, one glad morning when this life is over, I'll fly away. To that land on God's celestial shores, I'll fly away. And it was, like, it was like a hopeful song. It was like, you know what? This life is not the only life there is. We've got a better life coming. So uh, get ready for it now and be faithful in what God has called us to do here and now. Um, uh, so the ne- here's the next question. Um, what about now? How am I supposed to make it now, right? If life is hard, but it's not the only life there is, how can I help make it now? One of the ways we can help make it through life now with a good attitude, with a no-quit attitude, with a not throwing up our hands in despair or just getting cynical or weary and give up, one of the things that will help us to keep going is to say, is there anybody else that we can read about who's an example of some real setbacks, some real conflict happened to this guy, some real opposition happened to this guy trying to accomplish what God had called him to accomplish. And you know what? He never gave up. And if he never gave up, then I'm not going to give up. And of course, the person I'm referring to is the Apostle Paul. What he says in 2 Corinthians 4 is amazing. And the way I want, you, I want us to read it this morning is I want us to read it in a way that is not just Paul saying this about himself. I want you to say it in faith, and I want you to mean it when you're saying it about yourself and about your life, right? Paul says this. He says, I may be hard-pressed. I may be hard-pressed, but I'm not discouraged. I may be perplexed, like there's problems that he can't even solve right now, which for a guy as smart as Paul, they must have been pretty uh, tough problems. I may be perplexed, but I'm not in despair. I may be persecuted, but I am not abandoned. If you want to read about all the Paul's persecutions, read, go down to chapter 11 in 2 Corinthians. It's a hair-raising tale of conflict and persecution that one individual went through to advance the kingdom of God in the first century. I may be persecuted, but I am not abandoned. I may be struck down, but I am not destroyed. And some of those statements are statements of faith. Because you may not feel, well, maybe I do feel discouraged, or maybe I do feel in despair. Right now, I don't feel uh, anything but abandoned. And but just remember that that's it's temporary. It's where you are right now. Sometimes, sometimes discouragement is nothing more than discouragement is a temporary loss of perspective. Sometimes people, all they need to do is get to tomorrow. Or get to a week from now. And they'll realize, you know what? This, this absolute crisis that I was failing, that I thought was going to upset and destroy my life, it was just a temporary, it was a speed bump on the road of life. It wasn't the end, though it may feel like the end at the time. I may be struck down, I'm not destroyed. I may be given over to death for Jesus' sake, Paul says. But I am going to let his life be revealed in my mortal body. So Paul's even saying, even if I have to give up my life for the good news of Jesus Christ and to advance his kingdom. Even if that happens to me, I'm going to let his life be revealed in my life. That's an amazing perspective. Paul knew that whatever he did for the honor of Jesus was going to last forever. He knew that whatever he had to do without or sacrifice, that God would reward him in heaven forever and he'd make up for it. 
Paul had seen heaven. In fact, you guys realize this, right? This is in Paul's second second, uh, Corinthian letter in chapter 12, where he says he actually saw heaven. And and I'm, the, the worst part about reading that, you guys, if you've read that, you know the frustration. You read, you're in chapter 12, you're reading it, and he says, and I know a man who was caught up into the third heaven, and he saw these visions of stuff, and things, and then he says, things that I'm not permitted to tell. I'm like, why do you tell us you've seen all these things, and you say, but I can't tell you about it, sorry. I'm like, oh, I'd love, I'd love to hear the description of that. But that's where Paul says, eye has not seen, ears not heard, the mind is not even conceived or imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. So remember that life is a temporary assignment. It may be hard, but life is short and eternity is long. And Jesus says, I'm coming soon and my reward is with me. And that's including a reward for you, for your faithfulness to God. Friends, I know and I get it. We live in a fallen world. We live in a broken world. This world we live in is messed up. It is marred by sin and death and hate and violence. It's sin-stained. It's filled with people who are sin-stained, me first, uh, people who justify their actions for why they mistreat and abuse other people. And then those people that get hurt and mistreat and abuse, they go out and pass it and pay it forward to somebody else. Hurt people end up hurting other people. I get that. Our planet is marred by catastrophic weather events. Our planet is filled with harmful chemicals and microbes and bacteria that if anyone get into your body at just the wrong time, they could, it could lead to your physical death. No matter how many vitamins, no matter how many super C green smoothies you drink, it can still happen to you. Stuff happens. So what is that saying? Life is hard and then you die. You know, my, 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 still my follow-up question is, okay, I'll, I'll even concede. You've had a hard life. Life is hard and then you die. And then what? You know, it's not likely to be a pick-me-up. It's not likely to put a smile on your face outlook to have an attitude like that. Here's the good news. Jesus came into our broken world. He came into the broken world to fix it. And the way Jesus is fixing our broken world is he's starting in the hearts of people who put their trust in him. Jesus says, I'm going to fix you. And then as you're being fixed, I'm going to make you a fixer. Go out and fix what is broken in the world. You can only have a positive, hopeful perspective on life like Paul did. Remember where he says, hey, I've got all these bad things happen to me, but it's not going to kill me. I, I remember in the message, I think one of the lines is, I might be knocked down, but I'm not knocked out. You can have that attitude if you know that you're in Christ, if you know that you have a secure, safe place in God's family, you're in his kingdom, that you know God is good and loving and that he's with you, and that when this life's troubles are really over, and it may not be until you die, but when this life's uh, troubles are over, you will be with Jesus forever in heaven. And then all those troubles will be gone and done You know, here's another thing. I think uh, sometimes the Lord wants us to move from a victim mentality to a student mentality. Now, what do I mean by that? What's the difference between a victim mentality and a student mentality? Well, here's what a victim says. A victim says, why did this happen to me? But a student says, yeah, this happened to me, but what can I learn from this? A victim believes his hard times have come because God is trying to punish him. 
Somehow I got on God's wrong side and now it's all going against me. But a student understands that God allows hard times to happen in order to help him grow. Remember perseverance, endurance, all that stuff? And, he, and James even says at the end of that passage, he says, blesses the man who perseveres, who endures because he's going to receive the crown of life. You're going to get a crown of life when you endure in order to help him grow. And finally, the victim mentality. A victim believes God has abandoned him, but a student sees God's hand in everything. A student sees God's hand even in the worst moments of life. So my conclusion on that is be a student. Don't be a victim. God wants, us to, shape, God wants to shape us. He wants to mold our character so that we increasingly resemble his son, Jesus Christ. And how does he accomplish that? How does Jesus grow our character? Look what, look, you think about Jesus, you say, oh yeah, Jesus, it was easy. He's God. He comes in, he's a human being, but he's already God. So he already had all this stuff figured out. No, he didn't. As a human being, when Jesus was fully God and fully man, Jesus had to develop and learn things as a human being. And he learned some things only through suffering. I, this, this is a remarkable passage in the New Testament in Hebrews. It says, for this reason, he, talking about Jesus, he had to be made like them, like us human beings, fully human in every way, in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God. Only uh, uh, the mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, could, could do that for us, but he had to learn and to grow so he could become a merciful and faithful high priest so that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. And here's verse 18, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. I don't know, have you ever faced a temptation that is so overwhelming, that is so uh, powerful that it's almost like it's weakened you? It's almost weakened you physically and it's like, it's, like it, it, it's, it's paralyzing me, it's, it's zapping me. You know, and it says Jesus, when he was tempted, the, the Bible is very clear that Jesus never actually sinned, but the Bible is also very clear. Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, and yet he was without sin. And it says, because Jesus himself suffered when he was tempted, now he's able to help those who are being tempted. So when you're going through a trial or a test and that trust that God has given to you, when it is being tested... You know, be like Jesus, even when you're suffering, even when you're going through it and you're having to endure a trial or a trouble, remember that Jesus did the same thing. And now he is able to help you in moments like that when you are being tempted. Look at, look at some of the other things that Jesus had to go through. When you say, oh, life is hard, God, you don't, you don't know how hard this life is. Really? Jesus knows what you're going through. Jesus knew what it was like to be hungry and thirsty you know, most of us, by the way, and this is what we call the first world problems, like, oh man, my cell phone ran out of juice. You know, my battery's dead. What am I going to do now? I've got nothing to look at. I'm bored, right? First world problem, right? First world problem. Nothing to the level of hungry and thirsty and not knowing where your next meal was coming from like there are a lot of people on this planet that have to deal with. Jesus knew exhaustion. Jesus knew pain and suffering. And here's something else that, that, that is, is hard to relate to, but Jesus knew rejection and betrayal. His, one of his best friends in his group of 12 followers betrayed him, turned him over to the government authorities so that they could kill him and execute him. That must have hurt. 
He knew rejection. The Bible says Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. Jesus knew disappointment. Jesus knew when, like, somebody comes up and says, I'll follow you wherever you go, Lord. And he says, ah, the foxes have holes, birds have nests. I've got no place to lay my head. And he says, come follow me. And he says, oh, well, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back or goes back, no, they're not fit for the kingdom of God. You know, in other words, if you're not ready to walk in the steps of Jesus, he says, don't, don't get started if you're not willing to try to finish. And, but here's the thing. When we start the life of Jesus, he's going to help us finish. He knew disappointment. He knew what all the things that we go through and suffering in life. The 40 days in the wilderness when he's tempted by Satan. Every time the religious leaders, by the way, the religious leaders who should have been agreeing with Jesus, who should have been in his corner, the religious leaders who should have said, that man walks with God, that man knows God's word, that man knows what the life really is all about, and we should all follow him. The very people that should have recognized Jesus for who he is, they were the ones who opposed him the most. Every time they opposed him, every time his own followers misunderstood him and his teaching, even when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Remember that in Matthew's gospel? He's up there on the mountain and 500 people plus are on this mountain. And he says they were amazed at him. They saw him risen from the dead. And it says, and yet some doubted. And I'm thinking Jesus like, what is it going to take? You know, what does it take to get you from doubt to belief? He, know, he knows all those, those uh, emotions and those disappointments. He knows, God knows that we're going to go through some tough times. We're going to face setbacks. There's going to be hurts, disappointments, rejections. Jesus had his setbacks too. But you know, here's the, here's the difference. Jesus never gave up on the mission that the Father had given him. He never turned his back. He never stopped moving forward. And in fact, in the book of Hebrews chapter 12, it says, it says God is disciplining us and God is disciplining us because we are his children. If God never disciplined you, the Bible says, if, in he, the author of Hebrews, he says, if God never disciplined you, it's because you're not his son or daughter by faith in Christ. We get disciplined because we are his disciples. God is our heavenly father and he's shaping us into the image of his son, Jesus. And sometimes that takes discipline. That takes, that takes shaving off some of, the, some of the harsh, rough corners of our character. And, and the more we cooperate, the better this life is going to be. Look what uh, Paul says here in the book of Romans. He says, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that these problems and trials help us to develop perseverance. So I'm just going to conclude in this because I, I, I really want to get to this last part of the message. Life is hard, but remember life is temporary. So let that be a hope to you. Life, yeah, life is hard, but life is temporary. And God is getting you ready for your eternal home in heaven. I think somebody said this in a book. I can't recall who it is, but he said, our troubles won't last, but God's people will. God's people are going to endure beyond the troubles that we have to face. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians, for our present troubles are small and they won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. 
You know, when the Paul had seen the risen Jesus, he knew that he had a place waiting for him in heaven. And he also knew, he says, okay, all the troubles and setbacks and persecutions and pain, whatever I have to endure, it's going to be worth it because there's going to be an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. You know, I thought about today and I said, I'm going to offer an invitation today and I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and uh, get ready for that. Um, because for some of you, today is a day that you need to make a decision. Whether you're here with us live or whether you're watching uh, us via live stream, uh, some of you need to make a decision today and that decision is going to change your life forever. You may have thought that your life here on earth is the only life there is. But now you've heard this message and now you're thinking about what if there is more to life than just this life here on earth? What if there is such a thing as eternity? What if the soul that inhabits your body is going to go on and live forever? Where is that going to happen? And, and is there a God? And if there is a God who made you and a God who made a way for you to be forgiven and go to heaven, wouldn't you want to know a God like that? Wouldn't you want to know that when your life on here is over, that you have a place secured for you by Jesus in heaven forever. There's a song that we're going to sing. It's called, In My Father's House, There's a Place for Me. And you know what that reminds me of? It reminds me of Jesus with a troubled group of followers at the Last Supper. They're in the upper room the night before Jesus was crucified. And Jesus says this, In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And he says, I go and prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'm going to come back and I'm going to take you to be with me so that where I am, you may also be. I've said this many times in funerals, but I, I don't know exactly what heaven looks like. Thank you, Paul, for not describing it. Right? I don't know exactly what heaven looks like, but I know one thing. Jesus is going to be there because Jesus is risen from the dead. And Jesus says all the people who trust in him, he has a place waiting for them there. This life here that we have now is not the only life there is. You only get to that place by making a decision that you're not going to hold back anymore you're not going to stay in, in your skepticism or your disbelief. You're going to say yes to following Jesus. You're going to give your life to the leadership of Jesus Christ. And when you do that, you can say that second phrase and mean it. You can say, I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. You know what it says in John's gospel? It says, for as many people, and as ma are, you as, are you a person? As many people as received him, Jesus, Jesus gave the right to become children of God. It's a three-part process. First thing you do, you hear the good news and you believe the message. You believe. The next step is you receive. You receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You say, I am going to make you the leader of my life. I'm deciding to follow you for the rest of my life. And I'm, I'm just drawing a line in the sand. From this day forward, I'm going to be a follower of Christ. One of the ways we do that publicly is by being baptized. That's where you publicly declare your faith in Jesus. And here's the great thing about Jesus. Jesus said, if you will acknowledge me before men, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Jesus says, I went to the cross for you. I want you to stand up for me. And so what we're going to do is we're going to stand and we're going to have an invitation and if today is the day for you to say, I have decided 
to follow Jesus, no turning back. You know, we're not going to have our eyes bow, our, our eyes closed. We're not going to have our head bows. It's not a secret thing. This is going to be a public thing because Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before other people, Jesus says, I will acknowledge you before my Father in heaven. Are you really, are you ready to, to go public with that? Are you ready to say, yep, you know what? I believe and I'm going to receive. And when you believe and you receive, Jesus says, then you can become a child of God by faith. I hope that everybody in here has that peace and has that assurance that, that you are a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ and you have given your life over to his leadership in your life because life can be hard. But you know what? This life is short and eternity is long. And when we get there where God has us forever, all the troubles and the trials and the problems and the disappointments, they're all going to be worth it. They're all going to seem nothing. They're going to be, Paul says, our light and momentary troubles are, are going to be nothing compared to the glory that far outweighs them all. So just remember, life is short and eternity is long, and you know where you're going. God bless you all. Have a great day.